Welcome everyone. Welcome Dr. Scott Jensen to Freedom International Livestream and to all our viewers once again I say Happy New Year. Don't let anything or anyone take the joy out of your life because it's a brand new month, brand new year and all we have to do is up our game and do strategic moves. So one move we have is to support those who we believe are putting themselves online just so they could help all of us to make a difference and to claim the truth and freedom. So today we have Dr. Scott Jensen, and he is a Minnesota family doctor who won the Minnesota Family Physician of the Year in 2016. He has since become one of the most investigated doctors in the country for challenging the media and political narratives surrounding the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. From inflated death counts to the ineffectiveness of the lockdowns to the invasion of our freedoms when it comes to vaccine mandates. Scott Jensen has led charts both in Minnesota and nationally. I for one and many of you have seen him in many videos and we were just doing rah, rah, rah. Yeah, that's the kind of doctor we want. So he decided to throw his hat in the ring for the Minnesota's governor race in 2022, which is this year. So since that decision, Scott has generated eye-popping attention, raising well over a million dollars in six months, an off-year record for Republican challengers, garnering more average Facebook engagement than national figures like Ron DeSantis and Kristen Noem. And generating remarkable grassroots excitement is the top challenger against Democrat Governor Tim Walz. So just, that's just a little tip of the iceberg of what I can say about Dr. Scott Jensen. Thank you again, Dr. Scott Jensen, and thank you for being here. Welcome. Thank you very much, Grace. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I know you're doing a good job and I can feel your good sense of energy for you. But as a, as a wise person who really likes, who's just been awake for many years now, we are a little cautious. And I'm sure not only just me, but others. So let me ask you, what was your, and, and I think I failed to say that you were an, a state senator before. So what was your best accomplishment as a senator? And I know you're a great doctor. So what is your best accomplishment as a doctor? Well, as a doctor, I think that Perhaps my best accomplishment is that I have never stepped away from the notion that patients should be their own best champion of healthcare. And I think the role of the physician is to consistently advocate for their patients. Because if we do that as doctors, what will happen is patients will grow to trust us. Frankly, that's been one of the most painful things of this entire COVID pandemic is to see that relationship of advocacy and trust between physicians and patients, <clears throat> it's been fractured. A lot of patients are feeling abandoned and betrayed by their doctors or their clinics or their hospitals because it's as if patients aren't allowed to have the conversation that they want to have. They're being told, get into lockstep. We'll tell you what to do. And by the way, shut up and listen because we don't have time to have a conversation. So for me as a doctor, I think my biggest accomplishment is I've never stopped focusing on the patient-doctor relationship and that the patient is in charge. They have to be. <clears throat> as a senator, I think I would 
argue with myself over two things. I think one of the best things I did in the Senate was I demonstrated a relentless willingness to have hard conversations. I frequently put myself in political harm's way because I insisted that we have a conversation that some people were uncomfortable with. I don't think having a conversation about something means that you've necessarily said you believe this way or that way. I believe a hard conversation is part of that process of learning more. And so oftentimes the best conversation is one that's transparent and provides context. And we can talk about that in a little bit, Grace, but I've been accused of being a, a mask doubter. Well, it isn't about being a mask doubter. Mask is not a religion. A mask is a physical entity that can be analyzed based on physical data. So let's stop with the religiousness about masks. But I think that we need context in order to understand masks or so many other things that have gone on with this pandemic. But I think in terms of a bill, the one that I'm most proud of that I got passed in the Senate was one called the Pharmacy Benefit Manager Bill. And this was a first time new chapter of law for Minnesota, whereby we told the big pharmacy benefit managers, CVS, Caremark, Optum, and Express Scripts. We told them that if you want to do business in Minnesota, you'll be registered. You'll play by our rules. You don't get to have gag clauses in your contracts with the pharmacies. And that was a controversial bill. And in the 11th hour, Big Pharma came after me. They tried to knock it down. We did not knuckle. We got that bill passed. So I was pleased with that bill. Fantastic. So when once you win, what's in it for you? Or what is your underlying motivation? Or give us a little background of what is driving you to do what you're doing as a good senator, as a good doctor. Is that, um, and I, I believe at one point you had one year of being at the seminary. What, what, how can you, like, what, what's the best experience that you've generated from being in the seminary and why go there and now what do you bring once you become a, a, a governor? And then I'll pass it on to Roy because I'm sure all the other people have great questions. The seminary was a, a wonderful experience for me. My mom was in her 40s and she was my best friend and she had just passed away from colon cancer. And I had been in dental school and I was president of the class and I was struggling with teeth. I liked the biochemistry and the biology and the anatomy, but gee, I just did not have a love affair with teeth. So I decided to take a leave of absence and go to the seminary. And what that year did for me as much as anything is it really allowed me to spend time developing a strong moral compass. I'm not one of these people who thinks that my religion or my view of the religious world is the, the do-all, end-all. I think we all get to choose our own spiritual nature. But for me, being in the seminary gave me a chance to say, what am I about? And my life has always been about trying to take a stand and make a mark. And I don't want to shy away from the hard things. So when I'd been in the Senate, I found that I, I really didn't like the way politicians behave. I didn't like the operational logistics of how politics got done. And so I was plenty content to do the one term step away and be done. But in the wake of COVID, 
my life changed as so many lives did. And I basically got to a point where I said, damn it, I've had enough. I've had enough of people who are supposed to be thoughtful, transparent, contextual policymakers doing nothing more than politically pandering and throwing mud on the wall and walking around as if they have an IQ twice of what it really is. And so at some point in time said, the words of Esther 4.14, have you considered you're in the position you're in for such a time as this? Those words struck my heart. I said, I need to do this because I'm not about trying to find a new career path. I am about being laser focused on solving some of these problems, demonstrating to not just Minnesota or America, but to the whole world that we can do good policy by being transparent, by looking at the context of what we're trying to do and, and just being honest because politics has gotten so ugly and dishonest. There's very little authenticity to our political realms. Super. My respect and gratitude for you and everything that you do. I wish I would be, have been working with you as a nurse because you would have been my favorite doctor. I'll pass it on to Roy. Thanks, Chris. <clears throat> Hi, Scott. Hi, Roy. Um, like just sticking with the political uh, route because like I, I see a lot of the problems because I see in Europe the MEP, the amount of lobbyists, I, I believe it's something like 80 lobbyists to each MEP. Like that's the main problem because you know they're representing whether it's the pharmaceutical industry or the food industry to push their own agenda and unfortunately not everybody is as ethical as you and i love the bill because i haven't heard about that what you got through which is fantastic how can we stop this kind of system that's going on roy i think that in the world of medicine taking care of patients over and over again what i've seen is we can't solve a problem until we recognize it and i think that what we need to do is worldwide we we need to look through a different lens at what's going on around us. There's that old uh, boiling frog in water experiment where we talk about if you plunge a frog into hot water, it'll jump out and save its skin. But if you slowly and incrementally increase the heat, you will boil the frog to death. I think that's what's been happening worldwide. I don't think we've realized that there's a triad of big tech, big pharma, and big government. And there's an incestuous relationship connecting those three entities. And they are feeding one another, helping one another, and they're controlling so much of what information we consume, discuss, think about, read about. I think we need to take from this COVID pandemic an awareness that big pharma, big tech, and big government are controlling our lives like never before. And in so doing, they don't have our best interests in mind. They have power and control. Follow the money. We're seeing that over and over again. We're, we're finding the whole process maddening. But if we just follow the money and follow the power, I think it leads us back to big tech, the cancel culture, Big government, we're in charge, we'll control you. Big pharma, we've got a we've got a path to make more money than we've ever made before, and money is power. And until we start thinking about things from that perspective, 
we are at risk. Absolutely. And regarding, like, we're all aware of the kickbacks that have been going on since farmer kind of came on the scene you know there have always been going into the you know the doctor's offices or the actual the hospitals with with the bribes but the sickening part is what is happening during this you know we call it pandemic where they were giving kickbacks so you might tell us what you're aware of on that well again i, I think we saw big pharma working hand in hand with big government so in america what we saw was that if you used certain pre-hospital therapeutics, there might be a spiff. If you made a diagnosis from on a hospital discharge that COVID was involved, um, you if you hit a certain threshold, would get a bonus payment. Uh, Dr. Tony Fauci came out within the last couple of weeks and specifically and surprisingly addressed this because there was such clamor about how many pediatric patients are being admitted to hospitals around the nation with COVID. And uh, Fauci came out and said, well, let's let's press pause here for a minute. There's some different things going on that you might not be aware of. And then he shared with the nation that as a standard policy, everybody who comes through the emergency room and into the hospital in these pediatric centers is being tested. And if the test happened to be positive for COVID and you were admitted because you broke your leg and had to have it reset, you would still be identified as a COVID admission. This would potentially help the hospital in terms of some of the support programs governments are putting in place. But the real fact of the matter is this is not a COVID patient. This is a broken leg and it's gonna be fixed. And I think when we start to see the context, we start to understand it. With death certificates, that was where I initially raised my hand and said, why are you doing this, CDC? Why are you asking us to corrupt the mechanism by which we try to, with as much precision as possible, identify what was the diagnosis, what was the underlying cause of death that led to a patient's demise? And we weren't given satisfactory answers. But what we did see was down the road, we saw U.S. senators and congressmen and congresswomen advocating that their state receive more of the lion's share of some of these support programs because they had gotten hit harder by COVID. There was this race to the top of trying to lead in terms of how many COVID deaths, how many COVID diagnoses, how many cases. All of this was happening. And I think that context, it's absolutely critical that people understand it because that's when you start to understand what's going on in terms of financial spiffs. And there's so many ways. I mean, Medicare providing a 20% bump um, and on the DRG reimbursement system with Medicare patients, uh, we were seeing hospitals literally more than double their reimbursement for a COVID patient if it was diagnosed COVID rather than just a garden variety pneumonia. It was much better to put COVID pneumonia. And regarding the testing, because one, we know that the cycles that they were doing was basically giving too many false positives, but also you have the sterile IO, which is a carcinogenic. And 
I've heard recently, I've seen a few links, but I it's hard to kind of justify what's true and what's not. But has the CDC actually come out and said that the, the PCR tests don't work? Well, generally, transparent and fully understandable acknowledgements are not something you see from any organization that has three letters in it, it seems. But I would say this. When they decided to not renew the EUA on the PCR test at the end of December 2021, that was a clear signal. We have organizations like Mayo Clinic and many other highly regarded medical entities that have said, if you cycle a PCR test more than 28 times, you're really not testing for infectiousness. I think that has been accepted worldwide. And yet we still have testing centers cycling 36, 38, 40, 42 times. So we know that as Tony Fauci said, when you cycle that many times, frequently all we're doing is identifying dead nucleotides. And we're certainly not getting at the the thought of, is this person got infectious COVID-19? And like... I mean, they've got the antigen tests now, and I've seen something that's saying they're toxic as well. But like the main thing was that they were ramming them up your nose. The reality is, if it was that something could test you, a little swab in your mouth of the saliva should be sufficient to actually test that if you have got some sort of uh, infection. I think you make a good point, right? I think that some of these testing techniques are problematic. A person might say, oh, what's the big deal? All we're doing is swabbing your nose. No, I've done ear, nose, and throat work as a family doctor for 40 years. I've seen trauma induced by testing techniques. I've seen nasogastric tubes that are supposed to be inserted into the nose, circle around the back of the throat, get into the stomach so that we can decompress the stomach. And I've seen those NG tubes literally end up in the brain. They All they have to do is puncture the cribriform plate. That's partly why we stopped doing colonoscopies at a certain age, because at a certain age of patient, we know that the risk of the procedure and perforation may well outweigh the benefit. We always measure risk, benefit, risk, benefit. Well, we need to do that with our everyday testing as well with high nasal swabs. And the fact is, if we can simply gain a certain amount of nasal mucus by inserting it a half an inch or using a spit test, this might well be safer for the patient, more acceptable to the patient. And if you have safer and more acceptable, you might have a better chance of gaining the patient's confidence. And in the world of public health, confidence and trust, they're huge. Unfortunately, we've gone to a stage now where nearly everybody I know has lost faith in hospitals and doctors, and they don't want to go there when there's times that it could actually save their lives. But they're afraid because one, when you go there, they're pushing you like, uh, did you get the jab? You know, and it's like you're going to be treated differently if you didn't. And you're basically, it's a shame because there's so much kickbacks, there's so many people towing the line. There's very few people like yourself that are actually coming out and standing ground. Whereas the reality is, if everybody done that, this it falls apart. They're not able to get the control that they want. 
One of the things I've been really discouraged about has been in America, our perspective on the vaccine adverse event reporting system, the VAERS program. Traditionally, since 1990-1991, our VAERS program has sort of been the, the canary in the coal mine. That's the thing that tells us, is this recently introduced vaccine doing the job? What level of adverse events are we having? Are we having deaths? Things like that. People forget that in 1976, we had a swine flu outbreak. And there was an aggressive immunization program put in place. And the whole thing was suspended because some 50 people died from this vaccine program. If you look at what's happened with the COVID-19 vaccination program, even the CDC has acknowledged that probably 20% of the reported VAERS death data, 20% happened within 48 hours of receiving the vaccine. Well, we have almost 20,000 deaths being reported on that program for COVID vaccines. 20% would be 4,000. So arguably, we have 4,000 people that within 48 hours of receiving a vaccine died. In 1976, the association of 50 deaths with the vaccine was enough to suspend the program. Today, there's no suspension of the program. There's literally, there's a suspension of anybody who dares to speak that data. There's a canceling of that person. We don't need to necessarily be mean-spirited, but we have got to be able to talk about these matters in the context of what's gone before us and in a transparent way. Because if we don't, we will never restore the faith and trust in public health and doctors and hospitals and clinics. Oh, absolutely. And like, I know that some people they are kind of looking at, say, like the BBC, corrupt media, basically, BBC, CNN. Where are they getting all their statistics from? Who's feeding them all the information? Well, one thing I learned uh, through this process of being investigated over and over again was, I think we could rename fact checkers and call them fact blockers, because a lot of times they walk into what their mission is. They're supposed to be establishing credibility of some statement or some claim. They're not. Oftentimes they're going in with a preconceived endpoint. They know exactly what they're going to say. They're like a medical student dry labbing a chemistry experiment where you know what you're supposed to end up with. So you make certain that every step along the way, you only allow certain conclusions to be reached. And that's exactly what some of these fact checkers are doing. I, I don't think that we can have any confidence in the fact checking that goes on in the great majority of these agencies or companies that have started up going out and advertising themselves as reliable fact checkers. Yeah, oh, definitely. Just finally, um, I see like the, all these medical journals, because I'm kind of shocked that a lot of doctors, some, they don't study nutrition, natural health and things like that. They're kind of, they're brought into this pharma industry and basically go down the route. And most of the medical journals, unfortunately, a lot of them are corrupt as well. And I've heard, I've read recently that there's even ghostwriting going on from non-medical people for them journals. And unfortunately, a lot of doctors actually go as this is the gospel. 
and they kind of regurgitate what's in these like is not true journals they you know that the, what, what a lot of the stuff that's being posted is uh, is false I think that it's important to understand the context of what's happened to medical literature. Way back in the day, I think our journals like the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, Lancet, highly regarded with a real arm's length sort of distance from money. But what happened was our universities put certain publishing requirements on their professors. To get your PhD, you might have to publish a certain number of times. Publishing became the holy grail. If you didn't publish, your career in one way or another would potentially be truncated in one way or another. So the pursuit of funding research became a huge deal. And pharmaceutical companies stepped into the breach. And so you as a professor, a doctor, you needed to have a funding source. And if you were able to get funding from a pharmaceutical company, you were probably much more likely to get more funding if your experiments and research concluded something that was favorable for big pharma. This isn't hard to believe. This is almost the way of the world. And so I think we saw a gradual poison of what you get is what you pay for. And I think we're seeing that. So now we have medical journals. Well, we had Lancet, uh, was that about a year ago? I think they allowed uh, really uh, unfounded articles to be published and they had to walk it back. And we have found uh, an increasing distrust of medical journals that prior to had always been highly regarded. And it's really not difficult to figure out at all how this happened. Excellent. Listen, Scott, thank you very much. And I wish you the best of luck for your election campaign. Thank uh, you, Roy. Uh, pass you on to Chris. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? Good, Chris. Thank you. Good. Um, Grace mentioned at the start of the show there, obviously you've been heavily investigated, like uh, a good full, of, good handful of doctors, of course, in just America alone, shall we say. I believe over the Christmas period, it was your fifth investigation. And I admire that you've not involved an attorney that I know of so far, at least anyway, you've actually manned up and taken on as a true sovereign to take on things themselves. How can you briefly summarize for people that are tuning in at the moment? Because every investigation, we've had other doctors on this book about their investigations as, as it goes on. A lot of them, I know yours is pretty much along the lines of ivermectin and a few other things involved as well. Um, can you speak on, I think that was the 27th or so of December was the last time you put up a post on that. Um, can you speak as to where we are now with it? Have you responded to it? Or what's the, the latest update, update, shall we say, on your investigation? So this is investigation number five, Chris. And mm. the first four, after I submitted a response, they were outright dismissed. The nature of those allegations had been sort of broad, general terms like misinformation, reckless, stuff like that. This time, there were six allegations in the original letter that I received. And I believe that was, I think it was November. I think it was November. It might have been early December. But I responded 
And this time, my response wasn't enough to get the investigation terminated and the allegations dismissed. This time, I was asked to submit patient records. And I was given the statute citations for Minnesota, as well as federally, as to how and why the Board of Medical Practice could require these records of me. So you're right. I have chosen to not formally retain an attorney. I have not paid a dime to an attorney for any help. Certainly, I've occasionally had a beer in a bar where an attorney will come up alongside and say, hey, let me give you some advice. And I'll say, well, I'll drink a beer with you, but I'm not retaining any attorneys to help me. And so I've been real clear on that because I just want to be a regular family doc responding to Board of Medical complaints. This time, of the six allegations, and virtually every one of these allegations, the verbiage almost was identical to the verbiage on some of the tweets on the Twitter platform, which should tell us something, because it appears that none of the complaints have ever been submitted by anyone who ever saw me as a doctor. I don't know if anybody who's complained has ever even met me, but I don't get to know who they are because Minnesota Board of Medical Practice allows anonymity for the complainer, the complainer, the complainant. So anyway, this time the board singled out the fact that in my response, I had acknowledged that I have treated patients with ivermectin. And so they've said, well, show us those records. They didn't tell me why. They didn't tell me how much medical record they want. So right now I have been reviewing charts and trying to make a determination as to what my next steps will be. Certainly the Board of Medical Practice in this situation does not have permission from patients to have their records turned over. In those situations, the chart needs to be de-identified. Now, one person's idea of what de-identification means could differ from another's. I think that if you cross off the birth date and the name, you have not eliminated the possibility of that patient being readily identified. Simply matching up diagnostic codes with the medications that a patient takes could give that patient's identity away. Identifying what day or where patients received certain vaccines, which is something that's recorded on the chart, could allow someone who shouldn't know that person's identity. So this is not a small matter for me because I'm a huge believer in patient privacy, HIPAA laws, and I stood for that when I was in the Senate. So I've got to respond by next week, but I'll tell you this. If I choose to submit medical records, I'm confident that the Board of Medical Practice will be able to determine that the patient I cared for was not a rhinoceros. But beyond that, they might have some challenges. Very good. Are you, are you in fear in any way at all? As in, because some people obviously scupper under the table when they hear medical boards and all sorts of stuff with the hammers coming down or on top of them. The first step that you haven't gotten a rent and attorney straight away is a good sign of, you know, I'm ready for this kind of bring it on scenario. Are you in fear of a, your license being stripped or any other sort of altercations? Because sometimes it can be 
sort of in a lawless society for want of a better kind of word even if you're in the right sometimes over thing and, and take your stance and take your ground is still through corruption other ways this you can still maybe get turned over what's your i'm sure you've, you've thought of all different avenues what's, what's your stance on it i've always said that i'd rather be a naive optimist than a jaded cynic and if i allowed fear to captivate my mood i think that I would have fallen into the realm of being a jaded cynic. I cannot believe that the Minnesota Board of Medical Practice would try to stop me from taking care of the 4,000 people I take care of. I refuse to be afraid because I'm 67 years old and arguably I've lived more than 80% of my lifespan. I have been blessed beyond anything I ever could have dreamt. So, it really isn't a question of me crying in a towel saying, oh, why me? I think the question has got to be, why not me? I mean, I can, stand, I can stand on my two feet. I've been blessed. I don't have to practice medicine in order to pay the electrical bill. I want to practice medicine, and I'd love to practice until I'm 80. And then I told my wife we could talk about retirement. but. For now, I refuse to be afraid. Do I get nervous for my patients? Yeah, I do. And I'm going to do everything I can to fight for the privilege of taking care of them. But I'm not going to be afraid. I'm delighted to hear because I keep saying to people, you know, fear is one of the main factors why we're in this. Not one gunshot fired across the world, whatever in true fear, propaganda, and just noise in the background, as Roy mentioned, propaganda and the TVs, the media, the big tech, Silicon Valley, the list goes on and on and on. It is such a massive, massive psychological uh, warfare that has been going on, especially piped up by the likes of Tavistock Institute, by the likes of Silicon Valley. It's it's incredible how, I won't say it's incredible how they're pulling off, but I, I hate to give any kind of rewards for what they're saying. They've done a fantastic job. Um, these, you know, globalist elites, whatever terminology we want to put in them in the background to get people um, in fear. I mean, there was a doctor, there's a couple of doctors the other day, and I hate comparing that into the Holocaust, but it's different in a sense. They said the Holocaust was what it was back then. But today's modern version of it is what they said is there's nobody with guns, there's nobody forcing into trains, there's nobody forcing you to do anything. Now people are happily queuing up around the corner with the sleeve up ready to go already around a couple of blocks. It's it's incredible how the psyops um has manipulated men and women across the world. So yeah, I'm definitely delighted to see you're not in, in fear um over it like so many other people are in fear. But um what is the the Scott Jensen that was came, say, 18, 20 months ago, when you started first coming on yeah. YouTube and talking about the death certs and all that kind of, did you feel back then in comparison to now that kind of shit, like, is there many more of me out there? Because it was early stages. People didn't know what was going on. People are obviously in fear of their, besides from if they want to believe in the whole COVID stuff or not, they're in fear of their jobs, mortgages, their own personal situations straight away, and loved ones, of course. How has that changed in any way? compared to today shall we say because many other doctors we had in the show they said hey look we lost lots of so-called friends we thought we had in the way but we made a whole new family not just in our own country but we made it globally how does that fear today and lastly on that as well the people that you have today maybe not like yourself but like other doctors we spoke to as well they said there are so many people there right down the local hospital be it a private practice wherever they might be they want they're in fear they want to speak out. They agree with the likes yourself that will show their face in front of the camera. They'll say it behind closed doors, but no way for loving or money will they come on camera and say it because they're simply in fear of the job, the big car, the lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. 
going on. How does how was that for you? Have you made lots of new friends? Have you how has it kind of worked out over the last twenty odd months or so? The good, the bad, and the indifferent. That's an interesting uh, question you're asking me to reflect on. I would say it, it was early April of 2020 when I raised my hand and protested uh, regarding the corruption of the process of, for completing a death certificate. Over the next five or six months, I think I literally went through a baptism by fire. I was astonished that I've always had a wonderful standing in the medical community. I was a uh, medical professor, a professor at the medical school, and uh, residents uh, wanted to do rotations in my clinics. Uh, I've always been a popular physician. I do house calls. I do, I'm medical director of nursing homes and physical therapies, and I've been medical director of uh, ski slopes and things like that. And I've received a lot of awards. And all of a sudden, it was like I was a leper. And I didn't feel like I had many, many friends. And then it started to turn about six months later. And two or three things happened. One is people like Laura Ingram and Rush Limbo and Tony Robbins and Dr. Drew, Tucker Carlson, Newsmax, these people started to come to my defense saying, hold it. What has this doctor done that warrants this kind of treatment? Second thing that happened was uh, Dr. Koldorf and Bhutachara and Gupta wrote a document called the Great Barrington Declaration, which the day I read it, I signed it. It said with such clarity what kind of a direction we might best aim for in terms of policies in the context of the COVID pandemic. So people coming to my defense, the Bering Declaration articulating well what I agreed with was really the changing of the tide. And then over the next year, I certainly have met many people, Zoom calls, in-person, texting, emails, the whole thing. And I've really cherished those relationships, but it's interesting, Chris, these people are so much smarter than I am. I have had the gift of having people like Dr. Peter McCullough and Dr. Buddhachara and Dr. Scott Atlas and Dr. Harvey Reich and, and um, Dr. Robert Malone. These people have come alongside me and had conversations with me. Dr. Peter McCullough and I will be sharing a stage in a couple of weeks in Minneapolis to give uh, a seminar. And this has been a joy, an absolute joy. And so now I feel like, yes, I'm in the minority, but the minority is strong. And we know what our moral compass looks like. And we're not going to knuckle. We're not going to kiss the ring. Brilliant. <laughs> Cheers, Dr. Scott, for that. And um, I'll pass you on to Steve. Thanks very much. Thank you. Wow, this is great. And it's an honor to be speaking with you. Um, I learned of you early on, I think in April, with your um, your video on the muzzle and stuff like that. So I was uh, very disheartened when I saw they were attacking you. But if we're, you know, if you look at Dr. Peter McCullough, 
you guys have been on the front line saving lives. And, you know, I think he was let go at Baylor and he's still affiliated, but they're still attacking him and they're attacking you. So it's just very disheartening. So what's the best way you guys, you know, Roy and Chris covered a lot. What's the best way we can support you in getting into office? Well, I think we, we need to keep in, in, well, two questions. One is supporting me <clears throat> and then supporting my political run. In terms of supporting the contrarian narrative or the unconventional narrative, let's just take Dr. Peter McCullough. I think one of the most important things we can do is to keep taking clips from what he has said, because he is an extremely well-versed, well-read professor. He's an editor of some of the top medical journals. And oftentimes he'll do a podcast with a guy like Joe Rogan and it might be two hours long. And a lot of people don't do two hours. I did. I, I watched the entire thing and it was so informative, but I think we need to keep taking two minute clips and putting them out there and answering people's questions so that they understand about the Delta variant versus the Omicron variant. So they understand the size of the poor in a mask versus the size of a COVID particle. We need to make certain that we're trying to be transparent, factual, and always providing context. In terms of my specific effort to become governor of Minnesota, people are asking me why I wanna do that. And honestly, the biggest reason is because I think we have run so far outside the rails of real problem solving. We're not solving problems. We're just pandering and talking to the microphones. We need to remember that if you agree with someone 80 or 90% of the time, you don't have a 10 or a 20% enemy. You have an ally. We've got to solve some of these heavy duty issues. And certainly we've got to ask ourselves the hard questions. Why did all the medical research from 2000 to 2019 get so readily and casually dismissed when we had been relying on that as being the best we had to offer until COVID came along, until all of a sudden this fracture came along. Why would we do this? We've never done this in the history of humankind where two decades of what had been thought to be reliable evidence was literally thrown out the window, not because there was anything to replace it, but just because it didn't fit the narrative. So for my race, I'm asking people, please engage. I know that Scott Jensen is not going to be the darling choice of the political elite. They want someone who's going to respond to the levers that they pull. And I've made it clear that I want to solve problems. We're not taking any money from big pharma or big tech. And those are big check writers. Those people write big checks. We haven't done any fundraising through lobbyists. I don't want to be that kind of a leader. I want to be the kind of leader that when I'm done, people say, thanks for doing it. Thanks for leaving. Appreciate your contribution to the betterment of mankind. Go play some golf or go see your patients and have someone else be in there. We're not supposed to have professional politicians. We're supposed to have normal, everyday rank and file people go down, talk things over, 
commit themselves to solving a problem, solving the problem, monitoring the solution, determining whether or not the solution needs to be tweaked, whether or not it's good enough. Don't let better get in the way of good and keep moving forward. That's what we're supposed to do. And it's not happening. So I hope that people will just engage. And I would like them to push aside the career politicians because they're not getting the job done. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's supposed to be government by the people for the people. Right. So um, the Hippocratic Oath, um, I've heard the major premise. I think they changed that just the way they changed the way. But I think it, the major premise, as far as I understand it as a lay person, is do no harm. So my question is, does a hospital protocol of a privately owned hospital override Hippocratic Oath for a doctor that works within that hospital? It should not. And I'm going to remind you, there's really a variety of versions of the Hippocratic Oath out there, like you mentioned. And one of the cardinal features of the Hippocratic Oath is to do no harm. But there's another one. And I would ask that you put this into your memory bank because we should not let doctors forget this. There's two pieces that really jump out at me as a doctor of 40 years from the Hippocratic Oath. Yes, do no harm, but to relieve suffering. We are supposed to relieve suffering. And when we tell people who get COVID, you have two choices. Go home and get well on your own. Or go home and get so sick that you land in the hospital. And when you do, we will then tell you that some of the options that we might have been able to use for you are no longer available. That is a catch-22 of the raw nature, the rawest nature I've ever heard. We are not relieving suffering. We are telling patients, too bad for you. We are abandoning them. So when I think of the Hippocratic Oath, I think we have to relieve suffering. And if people are sick, they're entitled to our best efforts, even if it hasn't been demonstrated. 30 to 40% of my prescribing is off-label. Why am I being denied the opportunity to work with my patients to help them? In 1976, there was a Legionnaire's outbreak of pneumonia out of Pennsylvania. And what we did for them wasn't working and people were dying. What did doctors do? We didn't throw up our hands. We didn't call the White House. We didn't call Dr. Fauci. We just kept trying. And we stumbled across erythromycin, an old-fashioned antibiotic, which killed the Legionella pneumophila bacteria, and people didn't die. Why are we denying doctors and patients, the opportunity to do that this time around. It makes no clear sense. It's, I mean, we sort of know why, because this is not about what we, what everyone thinks it's about. You know, Dr. Mobin Syed has a great YouTube channel. I respect him a lot. And I think his last video just recently was he got a letter from, I think, an insurance company about him prescribing ivermectin. So they're attacking him for something that happened in the past, but it wasn't from like a board. I think it was from like an insurance provider. So they're finding every angle to just stop this, stop anything that's going to get these, these methods of treatment that actually resolve 
the problem. I mean, even nebulizing, keeping your nasal passages clear, uh, you know, vitamin D, zinc. Not once have we heard one health official globally, uh, you know, say it's important to boost your immune system. Go out, get fresh air. Uh, you know, don't 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 restrict your oxygen. Take vitamin D three and zinc at a minimum. Take those two things. You know, and. And, uh, you know, it's just never ending. But in a sense, we, we can talk in a circle because we know why, in a sense, this is being um, suppressed. But it is very disheartening to see that early treatment was the message from March 2020. And it was totally swept under the rug. And people have died. I mean, I think Peter, Dr. Peter McCullough says he'll go out on a limb and say 85% of the deaths could have been stopped. I think the other thing that needs to be understood by the layperson in terms of the context of treating viral illnesses is we've never had the kind of success rate treating a virus as we do a bacteria. I mean, it's, it's actually a pretty straightforward process of killing a strep bug or a staph bug uh, or E. coli. But viruses have always required mulling things over and cogitating frequently involving multiple drug therapy, whether we're talking HIV, whether we're talking even the shingles outbreaks that we treat, frequently it's not enough to simply use an antiviral. We oftentimes have to step in and treat with a, a steroid to reduce the inflammatory irritation of the nerve roots. We know that COVID-19 has probably numerous phases, but perhaps there are three distinct phases that we could highlight for people so they understand that the first 10 days is going to be a phase of viral replication. And you will feel like you feel when you get a virus, uh, influenza. Your skin will be achy and super sensitive, and you'll have a sore throat. You'll have a runny nose. You'll feel a little loggy. Your energy level wanes. You might have nausea. You might have a little diarrhea. You, you might feel just itchy, but overall, you, you feel sort of cruddy. That's going to be that first 10 days. And then you're going to have a phase where it's got a lot to do with not the viral replication, but it's got to do with the triggered inflammation. And so now we have to focus on the inflammation. And that's the cytokine storm and using steroids and trying to reduce bronchospasm or wheezing so that people can breathe more readily. Initially, we thought that if we just jacked up the pressure with a ventilator, we'd help these folks out, but we killed an awful lot of people. So we stopped doing that. And we went with high concentration, low flow oxygen and found that if we could just give the body some time to heal on its own, patients would do better. And then the third phase where we, we sort of get out of the woods, but we deal with the blood clotting. We deal with the micro blood clots. I've had several patients that three, four weeks later would have a stroke. And these situations would warrant something to be done regarding the thickness of our blood. So whether we use an aspirin or Eliquis or some other kind of blood thinner. So I think the three phases, you know, viral replication, inflammation, and blood clotting, those are handy things for people to think about. And we should be exactly as you said, we should be telling people in the face of Omicron with its dramatic firestorm spread characteristics, but seemingly less severe disease requiring less hospitalizations per case and the death rate being fairly stable even though 
we're seeing enormous new case numbers. It would make sense for us to, on a public health basis, go out and say, listen, you really need to start vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc. And if you would go outside and walk for five to 10 minutes a day briskly, you might be astonished. You might be doing the biggest favor you could. And I recommend people consider supplements. I think the flavonoid quercetin, Q-U-E-R-C-E-T-I-N, makes sense. It is a zinc ionophore. It allows zinc to more readily get into the cytoplasm of the cell. There's no downside. It's a natural plant molecule. Why aren't we encouraging people, do all you can? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a paper on from the NIH from 2005, I think, on zinc ionophores and how it stops SARS viruses. There's a paper from the NIH from 2007 on hydroxychloroquine and how it stops SARS viruses. You know, I mean, there's someone we know who's affiliated with the NIH. He's never talked about these papers. Um, even if you go to the NIH website right now, right now, it lists ivermectin as a treatment of COVID. So why isn't someone saying that, that we know should be saying it? And why can't, a ho- why can't someone in a hospital go, it's on the website, give it to me. It's underneath remdesivir, which costs $3,500, but I want this because it's on the NIH website. But I don't know if they can. At the University of Minnesota, they're doing a study this last three or four months where they're looking at six different arms of a study and eligibility requires that you get on the program within the first three days of having COVID diagnosed. But in it, you don't have to meet with a physician. You sign up for the program, they send you a questionnaire, and they will send you pills to take. And whether or not it's placebo or ivermectin or metformin or ivermectin plus metformin, and there are several arms of the study, this is astonishing to me because I, as a physician, am being investigated specifically for the patients I've treated with ivermectin, and I'm sitting down with my patients and looking at their kidney function, looking at their liver function, examining them, checking in their hearts and their lungs. And I'm being told, you can't be doing that. But here, let the University of Minnesota send it out through the mail. The disconnect cognitively for me is astonishing. It's astonishing. I mean, let's face it. Um, ivermectin has, what, I don't know, some 4 billion odd use, uh, you know, doses. It, the, the, the inventor won the Nobel Prize. Um, it's not a dangerous medication. I mean, it's, it's been proven. But the, you know, I think time's coming up. I, have, I wanted to sort of shift to a bit of a question I have on if we're going to go along with the circus narrative, if you talk about someone who has not had the um, injection yet at this point in time, in terms of viruses, is the first SARS-CoV-2 done? Like, you know, that fizzled out and then it went into Delta and now it's Omni. My point is, can you still get SARS-CoV-2 or now that doesn't really exist anymore? So jab number one would be, if you know, None of these jabs um, inoculate. Then none of them prevent infection, shedding, or spreading. So that's a big elephant in the room. But um, in terms of me understanding this at this point in time, are the past variants gone forever? Is that how vir- viruses work? Or you still could get SARS-CoV-2? If you would just think of the 
COVID-19 virus as a styrofoam ball with a bunch of different colored golf tees stuck in it. That's COVID-19. As the, the golf tees, the spike proteins mutate, what we're seeing is different immune responses to COVID-19 viruses that have different patterns of spike protein, the patterns being determined by the epitopes on the spike protein. So it's still all COVID-19, whether you're talking about December, January, December of 19, January of 2020, the Delta variant isn't gone. It may never disappear. It may be harbored in certain areas, become endemic. The likelihood is because mutations like to occur on viral, you know, viral respiratory RNA particles. I think that it's possible that it might disappear to be replaced ultimately by some watered down COVID-19 variant. It's very possible that once we quit studying the COVID-19, once it becomes endemic, that the only articles you would really read might be in a, an infectious virology journal where three years down the line, they may say, well, from 2020 to now, this is the number of mutations we're finding. And this is the current most common COVID-19 particle, if you will. So I think that we're just going to continue to see the process. And unfortunately, we're going to see media continue to use the evolution of this virus as an ongoing basis for fear-mongering. But yeah. we know the general trend is for viral mutations to reduce the virulence and it's not uncommon for it to increase the transmissibility. And if that happens, it makes sense that this is how a virus becomes endemic. And I think many people on either side of the question regarding the jab, I think many people would acknowledge that this is indeed what seems to be slowly happening. And I think even some of the political uh, comments that have been made, um, even though I think a lot of the politicians making those comments don't have a clue as to what they're saying. Oh, totally. I mean, the, you know, what comes to mind is the word emergency, you know, declaration of an emergency. Well, you know, you take that away and none of this could happen, right? That's the, that's the cornerstone of them doing all these draconian things, right? And uh, where I'm going with this is uh, this new variant seems, it seems like, you know, the first one, uh, if you got to it early, the, you know, almost 100%, you'd stop the second phase, which was dyspnea, where you couldn't breathe, you could oxygenate, you could actually breathe in, but you weren't oxygenating, and you were suffocating. And that was the one that, you know, they were using the fear and stuff. But that seems now then, then with Delta, it seemed like the second phase was gastrointestinal. And then with this, it seems like it's fatigue. So, I mean, would it be a fair statement of, to say, well, this variant is mild and you know it's not a it's not it doesn't have the suffocation the you know hypoxic type cytokine storm of the first one or the gastrointestinal of the second so you know what i'm trying to say is is there really much worry about this even though it's it seems to be spreading faster 
Well, I think it's definitely spreading faster. I mean, I, I think that that's pretty difficult to argue. But I, I, I would not be able to say that this Omicron variant uh, is so mild that hospitalizations are not occurring or deaths are not occurring, because they are. I think that if you look at the number of people that have Omicron and you look at the death rate and the fact that it's flat and not increasing is extremely encouraging. And we hear lots about the hospitals being overrun. But if you actually look at ICU beds being occupied with sick COVID patients, that hasn't necessarily risen like the actual case counts. There was an article about that today in the paper. So I think we have to remember that we're having a tremendous pressure to diagnose COVID-19 to the point where you can go to the hospital and in the emergency room, even if you're there for nothing other than a hangnail, you'll get tested. And if you're tested positive, that will be a part of your discharge summary. It's, it's too lucrative to not grab onto that because you never know when another government program will be put in place to provide yeah. support to those hospitals. So right now, the incentive is very real. Definitely keep doing what you can do to identify more and more disease. And we know that we're undercounting because we know there's an awful lot of people out there who are saying nuts to that. If I've got a mild respiratory illness, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to stay out of work. I'm not going to expose other people. I'm going to cover my mouth. I'm going to do vitamin C, D, zinc. And uh, if I have COVID, I have COVID, but it's not going to change anything. So I'm just going to go ahead and do what I would do if I had influenza. So we know that we're getting a massive undercount. So if they can say there's a half a million cases a day, but there could be twice that easily. Wow. So if the last question I'll ask, because uh, we're at the buzzer, is um, if someone at this point has not had any of the variants, they at this point could get any of the variants or that would be unlikely to get the first variant of, of, of COVID where you had the cytokine storm that I'm just, I'm saying, you know what I'm trying to say? Someone who's not, who hasn't had anything, can they get any three of the different variants or whatever the variants are? Theoretically, they could get any one of the three, but in, in all, ter all likelihood, they would get that which is in the, in the community. They would get, if you will, where is the, the vector? And, and the vector right now is Omicron. There's still Delta out there, but uh, and Delta by rights will probably diminish as, we, as time passes and Omicron will increase for a while and there most likely will be another variant. And I think there's some reports that that might already be happening. But I think at some point in time, there is an exhaustion, Steve, that's going on in the minds of the entire world. And they're saying, you know what? We're just not buying what you're selling and yes. you can keep coming at us. But what we have seen is we have seen none of these variants create any kind of existential crisis for the human race. And we need to take some confidence in that, that if you actually look at the infection fatality rate, we are not in the area of anything like MERS or Ebola or the 1918 swine flu pandemic. We're in a situation where this number is going to end up being somewhere around 0.2%, maybe 0.3 or 0.4%. But 
we are in that area, which is reassuring at one level, and we know who who the virus likes to target, and and we know that uh, the vaccine can can reduce the chances of hospitalization and death. So for that group of people, for them to be strongly considering the vaccine route makes a lot of sense. Uh, but the bottom line is, we will never be able to measure the number of suicides, mental health deaths, starvation deaths. There has been so much collateral damage that we have we have caused, and it it matters. I mean, there are reports that indicate that some ten thousand kids die every week around the globe because of aggravated and intensified lack of nutrition. This should trouble us deeply, but for some reason or another, it isn't getting the headlines. Yeah, just added to the list. Well, I'd I'd love to talk to you. You're you've been a hero of mine since uh, you know I first saw you in March or April of 2020, and I've been passing your videos, and I'm going to continue to share and do my part to get you into office. And uh, because as, as hard as it is, and as uh, as infiltrated as this world is with these with this darkness. The only thing that's going to exterminate it is some light, and that's what you are. And thanks again. I'll pass you to Grace. Thank you. Dr. Scott Jensen, thank you so much. And we are really honored to have you with us. So if you anything more that you want to share that could help you for running for the governor or for anything, please share. Thank you. I would love for our campaign to reflect exactly what a campaign should be. It should be a transparent effort to build a relationship with the people that you would govern. I want all Minnesotans to get to know me. And the best way to do that is to go to our website and start there, drscottjensen.com, drscottjensen.com. I try to speak to all the issues that I can. If you scroll to the bottom of any page, there are several links, including a Facebook link. You can click on there and you can see any of the videos we put out there. I don't have all the answers and I've been wrong plenty. I get that. But if I'm wrong, I try to acknowledge it and I keep moving forward. I try to provide a transparent perspective that relies mostly on context. I think we need to look at the world through the lens of big pharma, big tech and big government. And we have to ask ourselves, the why questions. Why doesn't the VAERS data seem to matter as much as it used to? Why did we not let pre-hospital treatments be governed in the way it's always been as a relationship matter between a patient and a doctor? Why have these things been done in this way? And I think if we ask enough questions, I think perspective will come to us. And Steve's right. The way out of this is to shine a light on the darkness. And I am so grateful for you, Grace, and all of your panelists, and all the people around the world that refuse to give in to the darkness. It seems like Darth Vader lurks around every corner. <laughs> well, we are not going to be defeated. We will move on. And to our audience, we thank you for your own conversation. Very good comments. 
And sorry if we didn't get a chance for that question, but I could always send that question to Dr. Scott Jensen. And then, you know, because I do want to respect his time because he is a practicing physician. Okay. So thank you to everyone. This will be uploaded at Quantum Nurse Bitchute, at uh, Rumble, and also all, each of us have their own platform in different places. And I just found about Getter the new social media and i'm gonna put it there so god bless you all in divine eternal timing and gratitude and humility we say happy new year and take care of yourselves thank you thank you dr happy new year thanks thanks god